very certain that in order for an artist to have the best chance of succeeding overseas, that there needs to be a person or people behind a desk in LA, New York or London who have a direct stake in their future success, financial stake and emotional stake. So you need to be able to kind of have them buy into deals um, on every level. And if you sign a worldwide deal out of Australia, you don't typically get that opportunity. So with Paul's first solo record, we wanted to do a deal just for Australia and another deal just for the rest of the world. And we were shopping it around. Everybody wanted to sign him. No one would give us an Australia-only deal. And finally, the then head of BMG said to me, look, if you're a label, we could do it. But, and I didn't let him finish the sentence. I said, that's fine. In that case, we're a label. Now let's talk. Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of music business to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top. You're with Luke Gerges for the Industry Observer. Today we have John Watson, who uh, has managed Silverchair in the past, which actually today, John, I don't know if you know, is the 10-year anniversary of the final record. Happy birthday to us. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, you also managed Birds of Tokyo, Daniel Johns, Justin Tebbett, Gotcha, Missy Higgins, just to name a few. Welcome, John. Thanks, Luke. Good to be here. Um, so take us back to when you were a teenager, just getting into the music business. Tell, tell us what your first move was. Um, I grew up in North Queensland in Townsville and I was lucky enough to work at a record store when I was still at high school. So th- Thursday nights, Saturday mornings, that's still the best job I've had in the music industry because you got to actually see customers, you know, the whites of their eyes. Um, you got to see why they bought things, what, what sorts of music pushed, pushed what sorts of buttons, broke down a lot of stereotypes about who might be into what. And it was also a fantastic music education. The kind of store I was working at, um, sold music that was kind of around the edges so in a small town you didn't have a blues store and a metal store and a folk store you had one store that sold all of that sort of music so it was a great way of kind of ending up hearing a lot of things that you wouldn't normally hear at 15 or 16. So as an artist manager I mean a lot of managers role is connecting the artists with audiences so I guess that would have been an awesome almost um education for, for, for setting up for that management career? Yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate that I've ended up having a range of experiences that equip me quite well for, for the management task. You know, a, a manager is an all-rounder by definition. Uh, at any given time, the person with whom you're dealing is probably going to know more about your area than you do. If I'm dealing with a journalist, they know more about media than me. If I'm dealing with a record company person, they probably know more about record companies than I do. Uh, if I'm dealing with a promoter, same thing. But I've had enough experience personally in each of these areas, say music retail, for example, that when I'm talking to somebody else about their area, I know enough about it to at least have some sense for what they might need and want and to be able to represent their interests back to my artist. So given that management is in part at least an interpreter role, you're trying to interpret the artist's intent for the industry trying to interpret the industry's need back to the artist. Um, The fact that I've kind of spoken both languages, I played in a band myself for a while, I've worked as a music journalist, I've worked at a record company, I've done some independent promotion, um, I've worked in record stores. uh, All of these sorts of things have come in really handy for me. That's awesome. So let's talk about that. You moved from Queensland to Sydney and and worked as a journalist, is that correct? So my standard gag is that my, my career has been one long downhill spiral. Um, <laughs> I began working in record stores and anybody who's sort of uh, – and, and playing in independent bands. Um, 
we my band got a bit of airplane triple J and we moved to Sydney to chase the the dream. Uh, dropped out of uni to do that, and uh, that that was probably the high point. You know, I think that anybody would say working in a record store, being in an indie band, that's great. Anyone who's ever worked, anyone who's ever been in a band knows that you know, music journalists are the lowest form of life on earth. So I started doing freelance music journalism, which was a step backwards. And then once you've been, I did that for a while for Street Press and for Rolling Stone and a few other mags. And then um, as the band thing came to an end, I started sort of doing a little bit of management and, and so forth. And then anybody who's been a music journalist knows that the real scum of the earth are the A&R guys because they're the ones that, you know, sign the artists that uh, that you have to review and you go, what idiot signed this? So I became one of the idiots that signed stuff. I got a job working at Sony. And then if you've worked at a record company, you know that the, the real scum of the earth are managers because they make your life hell. So eventually I left Sony to manage Silverchair. So I figure that, yeah, my next career move from here has to be axe murderer or something. <laughs> it's very funny. So I want to ask you about that job at Sony. So um, how did you end up working for Sony? And, uh, and tell us a bit about your role there. So I was in my uh, early to mid-20s. And as I say, I'd had a bit of experience in all sorts of areas. And it was just around the time that uh, alternative music was kind of going mainstream with Nirvana and everything else. So record companies were looking for someone from that side of the tracks to, to bring a bit of that energy in and Sony was looking for an A&R person to do that. Um, I uh, sent in my resume and, you know, had a few people that knew people, knew Dennis Hanlon, knew Peter Carpen, managed to get an interview and managed to land the job. And so that was in 1991, 1990 or 91. Um, and then about two years after that, the guy who had been doing the international marketing for Australian artists, which is the process of getting Sony's overseas affiliates to release the Australian artists in other territories uh, and to support it with marketing and promotion. Uh, he was promoted internally and I offered to take on that job in addition to A&R because I really wanted to, to get overseas and to have that extra experience. So I did two or three years of doing international marketing, which was super helpful, obviously, when Silverchair came along because I was in a position to help get their career you know, really rolling overseas and then left to manage them. So you, I want I want to ask a bit more about that specific experience working mm-hmm. at Sony and what it was like navigating um, a major label environment as your first job. Really, is that is that fair to say that was your first like job in the music industry and first full time job? I was, yeah. you know, I went back and was studying. I finished a degree in politics and I did um, some law studies and I was working as a freelance journalist. I was managing indie bands. I was doing a bit of independent um, promotion for mushrooms independent label at the time. So I had about four part-time jobs and was studying um, before I went to Sony. But yes, Sony was the first time that I took on a full-time job and it was very full-time. It was, you know, probably 80 hours a week of, and it was other than working in a record store, it was the most formative period of my um, career professionally. Um, Partly because of the, uh, the standards that you're expected to kind of meet in, in that environment Partly, I guess, because it was just such a different world from anything that I'd experienced, you know, growing up in North Queensland. Um, and uh, I remember telling the editor of Rolling Stone that I was going to work at Sony. He said, oh, you're really going into the belly of the beast. <laughs> and uh, and he was kind of right in a way. Like, it, you know, you, you had a ringside seat, you know, Midnight Oil were, were a big band around the world. And all of a sudden, you know, within a year or two, I was traveling around sort of being their marketing person. It was kind of a bit of a pinch me thing, really. Mm. And when you decided to eventually leave, so you signed Silverchair at Sony, is that correct? So what happened was that um, when I first started at Sony, they had wanted to start an indie label. In those days, um, 
all the record companies had these sort of indie offshoots that were sort of designed to try and find their Nirvana or their Ratcat. Is that any different to now? <laughs> yeah, look, I think I think now there's all sorts of splinter labels. Now they have a dance label. Now they'll have like a hip hop imprint. Like there's music's more fragmented now. Then there was kind of mainstream and alternative. It was kind of binary, which was a big change because pri- prior to that, it had just been really mainstream music and alternative music didn't really have a place at, at, at major companies, largely speaking. Um, so there was a, it was a change and there had been sort of a failed attempt to do that. And um, in 1994, um, there was a whole conversation about, okay, well, how do we do that again from scratch and, and learn from the mistakes that were made the previous time? And that led to the establishment of the Murmur label. And um, I was friendly with John O'Donnell from my time uh, working, writing for Rolling Stone. And I recommended John for the job and, you know, he agreed to do it. So on his second day at work at Sony, um, he was literally sharing my office because he didn't have anywhere to go. We were sitting at the one desk. We got a phone call from a friend of ours telling us about this band that had just recorded this song called Tomorrow at Triple J. And so the two of us um, went up to see them play and, I remember saying to him driving back from that first show where we saw them play to literally six people in a hotel bistro in Julestown, um, saying to him in the car on the way back, I love my job, but if I was ever going to leave it to manage a band, this would be the one. And wow. um, and so it was probably another nine or 12 months before I actually did. But John and I signed the band together and we were always sort of partners in that pro- process as we've been partners in so many other things since we co-managed Cold Chisel together t- these days and um, a lot of my artists that are that we manage are, are through emi where he's now the managing director right so when you decided to leave to manage silverchair i mean a big um challenge for managers starting their business is cash flow um did you go into that transition with a jv partner and investor or did you bootstrap it um well i took the smallest leap of faith that any managers ever had to take i kind of had the dream run um I think every manager would like the idea of being able to be inside the record company, making a difference for their artists. And there was, you know, a few months towards the end of my time at Sony where I knew I was going to be leaving to manage Silverchair. So I could have a meeting with myself and say, should we fly this band to Europe to do a showcase for, for all the local record companies? Yes. Yes. I believe that we should. Um, and that worked out pretty great for everybody, right? Sony did real well out of it. The band did real well out of it. And I certainly did well out of it too. Did you ever get questioned internally, like about ulterior motives? No, um, I think because the firstly there were other artists that we were having success with at the time. Tina Arena was, um, you know, very different musically, but Tina was. We had a top ten hit in the UK with Tina, um, and uh, and we had other artists who were doing very well in Southeast Asia at the time. So my international marketing role was kicking goals for the company. And Silverchair was kicking goals for the company. They were making great money out of that. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, maybe there was a bit of real politic in it as well of them going, hmm, if he's going to leave to manage the, the band, then we need to kind of keep him on side because they've only got a pretty short-term deal and they're obviously a career artist. And um, and, and I think also just on a relationship basis, um, you know, I worked for Dennis for five years. Um, he has a reputation as being a pretty uh, intimidating character, I, I think, yeah, that's fair to say across mm. the business. He never raised his voice at me once in five years of working there. You know, we always have got on. We've had our our Barneys over the years since from time to time, but fundamentally we've always got on extremely well and there's been a lot of mutual respect there and I think that probably also played a role that when I was working for Sony, I was able to protect Sony's interests mm. without hurting the band. 
Tell me about how you feel like you earned the respect of someone like Dennis. I read somewhere that um, two of your mentors in your career have been George Ash and Dennis. Mm -hmm. Very, very different personalities, very different ways of operating. Tell me about how, I guess, you earned either of their respects and, um, and what kind of, what did you take from each of them, them being so different? They are extremely different characters. Um, and I met them at very different points in my life. So you're probably looking for different things at different points. Um, I think in Dennis's case, um, the thing that allowed me, you'd have to ask him what he yeah. felt, you know, it's really, it's about him. It sounds like you're big upping yourself. Certainly what I tried to do always with Dennis was my feeling was that he could smell bullshit in a million miles. He was not a guy to bullshit. You know, if you, so the first thing to do was to try to know the answer to every question he might be going to ask you. And if you didn't know the answer, don't pretend that you do. Just say, I don't know the answer. I should know the answer and I'll find it out in 24 hours and then make sure that you do. Um, So, you know, he's famous for attention to detail and has extremely high standards in that regard. And that appeals to my mindset. I'm a kind of anally retentive control freak myself. So I think that probably also helped that by nature, I don't like loose ends. I don't like sloppiness. I like things to be really well organized. And so does he. So we probably had a a good natural orientation that way. Plus we're both Queenslanders, both went to Catholic schools, both sort of lost fathers early in life. There's a lot of things that we have in common. Um, As far as George is concerned, um, you know, he came into my career much later. Um, We set up our label with EMI in 2000 and in 2007, 2008, um, when Guy Hands had taken over EMI, I really felt like the company was losing its way and it wasn't the right home for us anymore. And George and his then boss, Max Hull, uh, came to us with you know, a really compelling offer that, that gave us a lot of opportunity for freedom. And so in George's case, it's been much more about empowerment um, and uh, not micromanaging. So couldn't be more different, but really that's been about the support I've been given. I've been given endless amounts of rope with which to hang myself. And <laughs> fortunately, it's worked out okay so far. There haven't been any nooses yet, at least none that I'm aware of. <laughs> That's awesome. So you mentioned that you studied at, um, you've got an honours in politics, is that Mm -hmm. correct? Yep. And you've also done, I know that you've done a bunch of subjects towards getting an MBA. Yeah, yeah. How valuable did you find find those courses? Um, Well, my standard line is that, you know, a degree in politics comes in handy in the music business. Um, But I I don't know that necessarily the, 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 arts degree, the history and the politics come in that handy, although in managing Midnight Oil, it certainly helps, you know, in conversation with the band. Um, The law stuff that I studied, I was about a third of the way to a law degree when I started at Sony and had to drop out to do that. That's come in intermittently handy, particularly the contract stuff, as you can imagine. Um, You need to be careful not to um, get in front of your skis on that um, and to think that you're a lawyer. I'm not. I'm not even a third of a lawyer. So, but, But there are times of times that, you know, I've been able to identify a problem um, because I'm really conscious of the legal consequence. As far as the MBA study is concerned, I did that for a completely different reason. Um, I don't know that it's really helped very much at all um, with my day-to-day work, but what I needed it for was to stop my brain rotting. I felt like, I read this article a little while ago that said there's a big difference between having 30 years of experience and having the same year of experience 30 times in a row. And 
leaving aside the massive change that's happened in the music business due to digitization, there is something about management, particularly when it comes to dealing with artists, that can feel a bit Groundhog Day. So doing the study, I found to be really helpful to me uh, in terms of keeping my mind fresh and giving me different things to think about. It was also quite interesting um, studying theory after you'd done a lot of things in practice. Usually you study early in your life. So you learn the theory first, then you walk out into the real world and you try and apply theory to real life situations. When you study later in life, you've had a heap of real world experience and you're now learning the theory that explains it. So you're retrofitting it. So you're literally sitting in a marketing course going, oh, is that what that's called? We've been doing that for 20 years. (laughs) And similarly, when it might come to say motivation you know, theories and things like that. So that was, that was very interesting. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily been that valuable necessarily, but it stopped me from crawling up a wall. So it helped in that respect at least. (laughs) Awesome. Um, When you look at operators in the music business, uh, do you have, is there a difference in your mind between a good music operator and somebody that is good at business and entrepreneurship? There are plenty of people in the music business who are natural entrepreneurs and they tend to be very successful in certain facets of the business. For example, as a festival promoter um, or uh, building services businesses that run alongside the music industry. In those areas, you're taking classic business skills where, you know, they could be every bit as efficient, you know, developing an app or opening a store at the fish markets. They just have that natural flair for, they love risk taking. They have an ability to mobilize people. Um, they have a drive. They can see an opportunity. Um, they could be deaf and do it. Mm. Um, there are other areas of the business where you probably need more of a, an instinct for artists and for music. Management would be one of those. Um, you know, artists will behave very differently from your app or the fish at the fish market. So if you don't have a sensibility for how, you know, what drives a creative person and how to communicate with that person and how to kind of represent their needs to the world, um, then you're going to struggle. So you need to actually have for those sorts of jobs within the music business, I think you need to have much more flair for artists and for music. Um, There are a lot of different styles of managers Um, just as there are a lot of different styles of artists. My typical description is to describe the manager and the artist as being like a yin-yang symbol. Every artist has a different set of needs. And so therefore, um, every manager has to supply a different set of services. Sometimes you supply, we manage a number of artists, we supply different services to different artists depending upon their different needs. Um, So regardless of your skill set, you can probably still find artists who would be good to work with. I'm sure there are artists out there that just want a manager who only does business. You know, Albert Grossman, who managed Bob Dylan, comes immediately to mind. Um, but generally speaking, I think managers need to have a little bit more, sort of be higher on the empathy scale, higher on the understanding scale, whereas people who are just, you know, business people, quote unquote, um, perhaps would be better suited to other parts of the business. Good answer. Um, do you have any sort of um, entrepreneurs or business thinkers or business minds that you read, respect, follow? I'm not a big fan of your classic kind of airport business textbooks. You know, your, your, your marketing guru, 
management consultant type people. Um, there are plenty of people within the business who have been, you know, mentors to me and whose conversation I greatly enjoy. You know, John Woodruff, Michael McMartin, um, you know, people that have sort of maybe walked the path before you. You know, Roger Davies is somebody who I would look up to. Um, I view my job as being relatively simple. My job is to grow the artist's career cake by more than the size of the slice I take away. Um, Any day that I don't do that is a day that I deserve to be fired. So my job is to add more value than I take away. And providing your slice being your management commission. Yeah. Our commissions. Yeah. Our commissions out of which I then pay my staff and all the overheads that go with it. Um, but the point is, is pretty simple. You know, my interests are 100% aligned with the artists. My job is to grow their career. Um, so the business drive that, that comes from that, I'm a service business. So the business drive that comes from that is really about providing better service to my clients. Um, I am not seeking to find love and mercy from my clients. Occasionally I do, and it's really nice when it happens. But you need to recognize that actually that's not what you're there for. You're not there to sort of make a new best friend. If you do, and you sometimes do do, then that's awesome, but it's not what you're there for. And I think if you've got a very clear mission like that, then that helps you have a much um, better understanding of what your role is. And therefore, a lot of the business textbook type things, which are about building your own business, um, are perhaps a little less relevant. That's not to say that I'm not mindful of building our own business. Of course I am. But it's a business that will only be sustained if I'm adding value for artists. So my question is pretty simple. What do I need to do to help my artists and to add more value to them? If I do that, I'm going to thrive. If I don't, I'm going to very quickly fail. And so management business is unlike a lot of other businesses where um, a management company, especially when you talk about things like key man clauses and, and things like that, it has very little equity. You know, I guess post, post-career, post there's no real, like if you have a property business, you have a lot of property and that's your equity. If you have a label, you have all the the masters, which you can retire on and just enjoy the royalties. Um Management doesn't really have that. And so if you you can't really sell a business that has key man clauses and things like that. Um, so when you're then focusing on your artist's career and your artist's business, are you worried about exposing yourself that, hey, maybe I'm not worrying about my own business? There are definitely points in time where that's been an issue. Um, if you are spending disproportionate amounts of time on certain projects and that's preventing you from taking on other opportunities or preventing you or, or basically, you know, leading to an over-servicing where you know, you're actually losing money on managing the artist because I've got nine staff. And if all those nine staff are working nonstop for two months on a project that makes a thousand dollars in commission, then I've just spent effectively, you know, 50 grand or something, mm-hmm. um, helping the artist realize their vision, um, which occasionally we do do, but it has to be as a step in a, in a broader um, thing. So it's, it's really about making sure that you've got that variable right, that the time that you're spending on projects is still rewarding. And you're right that you're not necessarily building a capital asset and there's plenty of arguments and many managers have. Um, 
sought to have, you know, trailing, long trailing commissions and ownership in publishing and things like that, precisely to recognise that they are partly responsible for helping improve the brand equity and therefore they should continue to have a piece of the of, of that brand. Um, maybe uh, it, it is poor business on my part, but I've never really been able to see a way to justify that in a long, long term. And I've been able to do extremely well out of it. You know, my view is that I should be taking, making enough profit as I go along and investing that money, that that becomes my exit strategy to the extent that I want one. Um, But you know, the, the, what happens if I get fired? Well, I have these other investments because as I went along, I got very well paid and um, you know, never more than I earned, but very well paid. And I invested that money as I went and it became about that that was leading to the, um, the payoff, I suppose. Um, so you started Eleven Music as a record company after mm-hmm. the management. Was that not um, with the intent to diversify your revenue and, and give yourself some equity? It really wasn't. Um, it did turn out that way. Yeah. Um, we set. Everybody thinks we set up Eleven um, to release Silverchair's records. It's not the case. We actually set up Eleven to release Paul Mac's first record. What happened was that at the time we were, uh, and I still to some extent am very certain that in order for an artist to have the best chance of succeeding overseas that there needs to be a person or people behind a desk in LA, New York or London who have a direct stake in their future success, financial stake and emotional stake. So you need to be able to kind of have them buy into deals um, on every level. And if you sign a worldwide deal out of Australia, you don't typically get that opportunity. So with Paul's first solo record, we wanted to do a deal just for Australia and another deal just for the rest of the world. And we were shopping it around. Everybody wanted to sign him. No one would give us an Australia-only deal. And finally, the then head of BMG said to me, look, if you're a label, we could do it. But, and I didn't let him finish the sentence. I said, that's fine. In that case, we're a label. Now let's talk. Amazing. Um, And so that led to us setting up the label. And then as the label was coming into existence, um, we were unable to reach terms with Sony on precisely that point that they wanted to keep the band we would be very happy to stay with Sony Australia, but we wanted to have, you know, a different relationship with Sony in America at the time. And we weren't able to come to terms with that. So we signed the band with Eleven in Australia and then signed them with, um, that was for Diorama, so with Atlantic in America. Missy came along and we signed her um, for here. We had the record count through EMI. In America, we had it out through Warners. And for people who want to get very sort of inside baseball, it led, it had tremendous benefit to the artists. All our artists end up owning their own masters. All our artists have complete creative control under their deals because as a manager, the artist at the end of the day controls it anyway, so why not put it in writing? Um, Also, the artist makes more money because we don't get paid twice. We either get paid as a record company or we get paid as a manager. We don't get paid as both. Um, Even though you're doing both work. Yeah, but so hopefully we end up making a little more money as a consequence of that, right? So the label's getting some kind of overhead funding when we're doing it on the EMI way. Um, so you're, you're talking about Eleven doing a deal with EMI. And EMI pays a little bit of, in that instance, when, when EMI was Eleven's label from 2000 to 2007 or eight, whenever we, 2008 it must have been, maybe it was even 2009. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, the way it worked was that they paid some overhead contribution, which helped us with our staffing and so forth. And that was how we sort of covered that portion. And then we either got management commissions or we got a label share. So the artists ended up making more money. And most importantly, the artists benefited from those direct overseas investments and they end up with uncrossed um, royalty accounts. So if you take Missy as a case in point, 
um, Warners had funded her first two albums. They were, you know, they, were, they were quite expensive records to make. She spent a lot of time in America doing co-writing and things like that and cut the records in LA. Um, they did really well in Australia, but she was making you know money from record one because the, the royalties were not cross-recouped. So, you know, as managers, we were able to look our artists in the eyes and say, you know, we manage plenty of artists who are signed to other labels, but if you sign to our label, there are a lot of benefits in it for you. Um, that's the reason I've never started a publishing company because I can see how it's in my interest. I just can't see a way to honestly say to an artist, it's in your interest to sign your publishing to me, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's why we set up 11. It gave, it allowed both Melissa and I come from a record company background. Um, it allowed us to have the control that we like, as I say, we're only return of control freaks. So we were able to sort of do the A&R and the general marketing planning and then work with, you know, other labels to help with the execution sort of step of all of that. And then when we moved to Universal, we literally, Kirsty, who had been the product manager at EMI, came and worked here. So we literally took the execution piece in-house. And what it allowed us to do was to really aggregate our touring activity and our recording activity because we're in the business of selling artists, not just in the business of selling, you know, downloads or streams or tickets. Mm. Um, so as managers, we bring that mindset to bear and all of our marketing activity is selling the artists as a whole, whether it's their copyright or whether it's their T-shirt. So, so hearing that scenario, it sounds um, unbelievably fortunate for the artists that are involved in that. Like it, sound, it does sound extremely artist-friendly, which is amazing. Um, when you're, you have a new artist on team management, you suggest the label, which, I mean, hearing it, we both now know that it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity for the artist. Um, do you then have to get like a third-party lawyer involved to broker that deal to, to prove to the artist that it is in fact as Yes, because say? typically the deal's being done at the same time though. The management deal and the recording deal of on the... I think I'm right in saying on every occasion right. have happened at the same time. So the artist has, has been unsigned for management and unsigned for recording. And we're talking to their lawyer about signing both of those things. They're two separate deals, mm. but you know, we're not as the manager negotiating with the record company. We are not yet the manager. So <laughs> yeah. we are doing the two deals together with a lawyer. So there's an arm's length thing. And just on the artist friendly part. Yeah, it is. And so it should be. Um, that's not just Catholic guilt though, probably partly, but it's not just <laughs> Catholic guilt. You know, if you look at our roster, you know, we're working with Gautier, we're working with Missy Higgins, um, we're working with Silverchair, we're working, I'm moving outside of our label artists now, right, I'm working onto our management clients, mm. we're working with Cold Chisel, we're working with Birds of Tokyo, we're working with Midnight Oil, um, we're working with Dustin Tebbett, I don't want to single anybody out if I've missed it, we're working with the presets. Yeah. Um, these are gifted, gifted people, these are not run-of-the-mill artists, they deserve to be treated well. And if you're lucky enough to, to work with them, you'd be a bloody idiot not to because there's not another bus like that coming along tomorrow. Hmm. So, you know, it's also out of self-interest. In a small market like this, there are a very small handful of artists that really make sense financially to be involved in managing and creatively and also that turn out to be good people that you want to work with. That is a very, very small set of artists. If you are lucky enough to get to work with one of them, you do not want to screw it up. So, you know, it's as basic as that. You know, it doesn't have to just be a moral thing, although it's partly that. It's also just good business to do the right thing. Mm. Um, You've kept the label and, at least from the outside looking in, you've kept the label and the management uh, roster quite boutique. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Is that a deliberate decision or are you looking to scale? Uh, that's a deliberate decision and it's uh, it's caused by a couple of things. Firstly, because Mal and I do like to be across details, if we take on too much, it stresses us out. It doesn't give us satisfaction. It gives us dissatisfaction um, because we don't feel across things. And that is a great limitation to our ability to grow our business. It makes us, um, it puts a ceiling on what we're capable of doing. But one of, there are lots of bad things about getting older. One of the good things about getting older is that you come to know yourself. And on the occasions where we've sort of taken on too much, it has been distinctly unpleasant. And so we like to do a couple of things at a time, do them well, make them count, and if you pick the right couple of things, then you can make a very good living from it. It can be very re- rewarding on other levels as well. And surely that's all you want from a job. Other people gain that same, to get that same level of satisfaction, other people need an empire. They need the feeling of, I've just started up six new businesses, you know? And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, in some ways, I'm jealous of people who can be like that. Um, but it's not how I'm wired. Um, one thing that I always very admired for you when I was a manager when I was 18, n- had no ability as a manager, had no track record, didn't have artists that could make any money. You still answered all my emails. You had coffees whenever it was at a fork on the road um, for no real gain in any way um, and certainly no potential. <laughs> um, I'm very grateful about that. Is that and that, that's that's something I really admire. Can you explain, I guess, what your, what your motives are for, for being so generous with your time and when you have all these amazing artists and they, they keep you very busy, you're still able to do that well i knew that one day you'd be doing a podcast you see and um and i just thought to myself i'm going to cultivate this guy and and one day i'll be the second person to be interviewed for his podcast um no i look for me it's partly that i enjoy the energy you get when you're sort of talking to people who are starting out in the business there's always a um a nice kind of buzz you get from from their different take on things um Partly it's all, always just good networking to meet new people and you never know where things are going to lead. But more for me, it's that I benefited from other people being every bit or perhaps more generous with their time when I was 20, 21, 22, walking around and bumping into things. Um, and those people were incredibly generous to me in ways that I've never forgotten. You know, Mike McMartin, Stuart Coop come particularly to mind. And um, so I guess there's a little touch of pay it forward and all that and hoping that, you know, it can be a pretty uh, difficult business at times for people. And there are plenty of managers that I came through with who ended up melting down in various ways, good people who who melted down in various ways. And um, I think that's partly because there's not the support structures in place. There's not sort of management is quite solitary so it's nice to be able to sort of grab coffee with with other managers and just sort of yeah shoot the shit it can it can be a thing that helps everybody feel a little bit better and get through the day and just on that can you tell me what i guess as a manager your biggest stress is and also maybe share with us say the biggest mistake you've made as a manager um two great questions the biggest stress most stresses, if you sort of zoom far enough out, you know, Google map style, zoom right, right out. The big stresses of the business come from the fact that artists, good artists, make music for reasons other than its commercial exploitation. You know, 
I always like to tell the story of when I was doing my MBA of sitting in a marketing course where they talked about how, you know, when you're creating a product, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go out, figure out what unmet needs there are among consumers, and then you tailor your product to fit that need. You work out how the right advertising channel is to, to reach those people and the right message to put down that channel. And then you sell your, you know, toothpaste that has whitening added to it to those people that are looking for whitening toothpaste. And they went around the room and they asked people to give examples. And the person from the baby food company talked about how they put some of the stuff in pink tins and some in blue tins, even though there's no difference, just to make people think it was for girls and boys. And, you know, the banking person talked similarly about their mortgages. And it got to me and they said, so how does your product come about? I said, well, the artist breaks up with their, the love of their life. They go home, drink half a bottle of scotch, pour their soul out onto a, you know, a recording, wake up in the morning. And if there's any, if we're lucky, they send it to us and we figure out how we can flog it. And, um, and everyone laughed. It's like, it's actually not a joke. I can tell you the song. Um, so it, you know, the stresses come from the fact that the artist is not good artists. While they may have some commercial um, mindedness, it's not usually their primary driver. Their primary driver is self-expression. Their primary driver is provoking change. Their primary driver is expanding their own creativity. It's all of these things which lead to great work. Your job as a manager, though, is a different one. Your job is to go, okay, how can I keep this business ticking over? And so it's always a disconnect between those things. You know, um, you've just had great success making one kind of record. You want to do a completely different kind of record. Um, How do I find an audience for that one? How do I not alienate all these other fans? So, you know, I've secured for you, you know, Silverchair, this amazing opportunity for you to play at Wembley Stadium and instead you're going to stay at home to go to a friend's 16th birthday party. Not a hypothetical example, a real one. <laughs> so th- those are the sorts of stresses, you know, and I could do a thousand more of them. Um, the thing most people don't understand about management is that 50% of it is facing inwards to artists and 50% is facing outwards to the industry. Everyone always focuses on the second part. And there is some stress in that. You know, when you're having to fight against a record company that's wanting to do the wrong thing for your artist or against Google over, you know, the needs that they, you know, the rights that they think they should have on, uh, for, for, for what they can do with your artist's music. That stuff can be sort of stressful, but the, the more stressful stuff tends to be the internal facing stuff that people don't like to talk about because it's private. Um, you know, and it's about how you communicate with your artists and trying to take, um, you know, fundamentally uncommercial instincts and commercialize them and do that in a way that the artist ultimately feels is, is good and positive and adds value to their career rather than feeling like they're being co-opted into something that they don't want to do. So that's usually where the stress comes from. Um, in terms of the second question, which was what's the biggest mistake you've ever made? Um, I think that probably the biggest mistake I made was early in my career taking things too personally, getting too close to the artist. You know, particularly on Frog Stomp and, and Freak Show, where Daniel from Silverchair was, you know, really struggling with being thrust into the limelight at a very young age. And there was a lot of really uh, difficult media coverage on all sorts of levels that was incredibly distressing, like incredibly distressing, unimaginably so. Um, you know, I took a lot of that stuff very personally and I it was because I cared. But when I look back, I think I'd have probably done a better job if I'd been a bit more dispassionate. Um, the artist is on an emotional roller coaster. They don't actually need someone riding the roller coaster with them. They need somebody who's off the roller coaster, who's able to say to them, there's a dip coming up here. Watch out for the dip. Here it is. It'll be over soon. And that's the dip. Now there'll be a long, slow climb. It's going to last a little bit. 
relax. It's a long, slow climb, you know, and being a navigator in that way for them is what they really need. So I find a lot, the mistake a lot of young managers make is that they think it's them. You know, it's never about you. And the other thing it's fortunately it has never happened to me, but I've seen it happen a lot. Young managers get incredibly emotionally invested in the artist that they're working with. They take it very, very personally. And then the artist fires them and it's an utterly destroying experience for them. Destructive experience. Um, Precisely because they've had all their eggs in that basket. You know, I think I'm a better manager and I'm certainly a better person. I have a better life when I recognize that I'm a manager as my job and I have a family and I have kids and I go and watch the Swans play and I, you know, follow Bruce Springsteen around when he does shows as a fan and I have a life as well. And I think that allows me to be more balanced in my advice and certainly more balanced in my life. And, and that's really important, you know, to be able to keep doing it year after year and not getting fried. And can you share with me um, splitting your, you being a manager and you being a business owner, um, can you share with us your biggest stress and maybe mistake you've made as a business owner and structuring your business, either the, the management or the record company or both? I'm not a natural HR person. Um, and so I think my biggest weaknesses on the business side are always you know, in that regard, as we're a small business, it's very difficult for us to find ways to allow staff members to grow, you know, precisely because we are so across detail. Um, it can be quite sort of, um, what's the right word? Stultifying for, for staff members after a certain point to still have us kind of leaning over their shoulder a little bit, you know? And so, allowing staff members to grow at the right speed, recognizing when they have effectively outgrown this company and being able to encourage them to seek a new opportunity before they start to feel like resentful um, has been really difficult. We would love for them to go on, you know, and I think probably also we haven't perhaps had the staff member that wanted to sort of become a manager themselves and bring in their own artists and could have done it under our umbrella, which, you know, we've, on a number of different occasions we've sort of said to staff members but they haven't for various members uh, reasons. but that sounds like you you are looking to scale when you suggest that well i'm not looking to scale but we've had some good people that we've that have had to move on because they felt probably rightly that they'd hit a ceiling it would have been nice to have kept them because i liked them and they're right. good and if that's what it would have taken to do it then that would have been fine mm-hmm. you know but I certainly wasn't looking to build an empire. You know, the American way of doing this is that you reach around my age and you have half a dozen younger managers and you're making most of the money and they're, you know, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It's like you're sort of <laughs> selling Amway or something. Um, not that selling Amway is a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> Your Honour. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, that idea that you have like a whole sort of bunch of artists and you sort of swan in for the for the signing of the artist, you swan in for the meeting with the head of the record company and you turn up at the Grammys and that's kind of it. Um, always looks like quite a, you know, it must be nice to be able to do that, I suppose. But it's not my bag, really. You know, I quite enjoy still writing the the press release, you know, um, as ridiculous as that might sound. I think it's important part of the storytelling part of what we do. And so there's a lot of detail stuff that I just wouldn't be able to do if I was like that. And as I say, it's, it would stress us out. So, you know, we know ourselves the way that we do it has been very good to us we recognize it has limitations but we can work within them 
John, thank you very much for your time. I have one last question. Um, can you, we've heard your whole story. Can you tell me at what point you feel was the tipping point in your career um, where it was like, okay, I'm never going to go back to having some crappy real job. Uh, this is me now and I'm only going to, I'm only going to start. I'm just, I'm just starting to hit my strides and this is, this is the time. Can you tell us what that tipping point was? That's a sensational question. Um, the smart-ass answer would be to say I'm looking forward to it arriving, um, <laughs> but that would be that would be being cute. Uh, I can tell you the biggest turning point in my career, mm. which perhaps goes to the same thing because the moment you're talking about came after it. In 2002, uh, our first child was born in the March, and uh, Silverchair's diorama was released in that March, and obviously if anybody who's ever had kids understands the sort of pressure that comes on you self-imposed to all of a sudden go, I've got a baby at home. I've got to provide, you know? And at exactly that moment, Daniel got incredibly sick. He got this thing called reactive arthritis. He was unable to tour. He was unable to do promotion. All of our plans for that record were completely like I literally spent day after day tearing down things that I'd spent six months building or longer, two years building in some cases. Not long after that, while Daniel was still sick and Diorama was at 80 in the charts with an anchor um, and the phone had gone very, very quiet. All these people that used to like to have lunch and dinners, just they somehow lost my number. Um, Jet came along and I was very keen to sign them um, and missed out. And I vividly recall getting that phone call and having to go out for dinner. It was on a Friday evening and walking down the street towards where we were going for dinner and having the most powerful thought of I am going to have to go back and work at Sony or at a record company so I'm going to go and have to take a job working for someone else because I've got this you know baby at home and and Daniel can't tour and you know we've got nothing else like Paul had a career but it wasn't enough to sustain a whole business and uh, yeah that was a real out of body moment and then fortunately Silverchair then went on to to clean up at the Arias near the end of that year. The album bulleted back up the charts, went on to sell a couple hundred thousand more copies. The tour was hugely successful. We signed Missy. And when she became successful as well, very successful, you know, like a nine times platinum album successful, that was probably when I knew, okay, we're, we're good here. We're rolling, you know, and other opportunities started to come. But I certainly at that jet moment felt like this is what it feels like to go from rooster to feather duster. And um, I remember every person that was a friend in that period. And, you know, I don't blame the people that weren't friends, but I remember the people that were friends. And I think that's a real valuable thing in life. And, um, you know, for, for anybody that wants a little bit of advice on how to conduct these things, when people are having success, everyone's all over them. And that's nice. And, you know, if your friend's having success, you should say congratulations. But you might want to think about when your friend's actually not having success, uh, being there for them in those moments. Because, A, that's when they need it. And, B, if they're a good person, they'll remember it later. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said for um, not just being a fair-weather friend. And so I think that's probably the most transformative moment for me, Um, that moment of... My, I, I built my whole business around one client. 
that client had got really, really sick and there was nothing going on. It was absolutely becalmed. And this next big thing comes along and I miss out on it to younger managers. And it was, um, yeah, it was definitely a moment where I realized I have got too many eggs in every respect in that barrel. John, that was very insightful and very enjoyable. Thank you very much. No worries, Luke. Happy to do it. Thank you.